Hi, I'm Tiana. And I'm Ryan. And we're from Arcata, California. This the Sound of Young America, America is an independent, independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd, you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guests on the program are Mick Collins and Ben Blackwell. They are the front man and one of the two drummers, respectively, of the band The Dirt Bombs. Uh, their brand new record is called We Have You Surrounded. They're stalwarts of the Detroit rock and roll scene um, for the past 15 years. And uh, Mick is actually a stalwart of the Detroit rock and roll scene for uh, some 25 years at this point, something like that anyway. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the Sandy Young America. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. So um, I feel like I don't have any understanding of what Detroit is like as a place. I, you know, mm. reading reading about your band and your careers, it's so embedded in Detroit. Yeah, it's it's difficult. How do you explain what it is to somebody who doesn't know? Well, imagine a company town that doesn't have a company anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but all the employees are still there, and that's a that's a, a succinct a description no, of Detroit. And I nothing's come. Yeah, no, no company's coming, coming back. To take, yeah. take its place. You no company, no other smaller com- uh, yeah. collection of smaller companies. Nothing. There's something in Detroit uh, that, as a native San Franciscan, just absolutely boggled my mind when I was talking with a friend from Detroit about it, which is vacant real estate. Real estate Lots that's not just vacant because it's between people uh, uh, <laughs> occupying it, but is it, its its state is uh, is vacant for an indeterminate period into the future. Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, there's entire blocks like that. Uh, huge industrial complexes. In fact, we briefly had a rehearsal space inside one that was. Thousands and thousands and thousands of square feet. I think it actually crossed into millions of square yeah. feet. The place <laughs> yeah, where we it rehearsed. Was, it was enormous. Renting out one little room we at a time. Out, yeah, we, yeah, they were just renting out to people. One of the nice things about it, though, is that the cost of living in Detroit is so low that if you, you know, if you're an art, like an artist, for example, you can just get a place to live and not have to worry about getting getting turfed, you know, because you don't have any money. Because the cost of living is really low, you can actually do your work and not have to, you know, like and live like a human being. Yeah, it's it's kind of easier to get by, you know, you know some some type of hustle, you know. Yeah. Notwithstanding, you know, when you're not doing the band, you pick up things here and there. You know, you work at the record yeah, store. Yeah, you can just do stuff without having to worry. I mean, it's not it's not like it's um it just seems like. There are so many artists in New York, and they're all working like four jobs, and they're staying in a place with five other people, and they're still paying twelve hundred bucks a month. They're like San Francisco was like that, and you know there's places, and like in Detroit, what you're paying will buy you a really nice house, you know, and feed you like a king, and you can still not, you know, you only have the one thing to do. Have you always felt that way about Detroit? Was there a time 
when you were, you know, a teenager and you dreamed about a, a different style of life in, you know, I guess mm. whatever the whatever the then equivalent of, you know, living in Brooklyn is now. Well, <laughs> I, th- I think it's weird. You know, Mick and I, you know, we're separated by about maybe 20 years or so in age. And we we grew up in different sides of town and different neighborhoods and different kind of upbringings. But I think for the most part, the experience is is fairly similar, yeah. you know, as far as realizing early on you, you want to do music. And uh, once that became viable and not really having to do anything else, doing it. But in regards to the city... It's, yeah, just sort of work around it. You know, this, the, the living in Detroit lets you make a decision like, oh, I'm going to be in a band and that's pretty much all I'm going to do and you can you can do it. I think, to answer your question though, I, I think... Every time we tour a lot, we've been on, we've been touring quite, pretty extensively lately, and every time I go to another city, it seems like you know, it's, you know, you can't help but compare the two, and yeah, it's pretty frustrating. Yeah, you know, like there's always, you know, there, there's always more somewhere else. Um, but one of the things that that I like about Detroit is that it is, for the most part, quiet. Like that, where you know you're not under pressure to always be be on or be somewhere, you know you just you can you can just sort of kick back and relax, you know. We, we play we do occasionally play the small town where we're the only thing in, happening that week, you know. Like the, we know that we're the only thing that there is to do in that town. And some days Detroit feels like that, where there's really only one. There's there's you know you don't have a huge range of options for entertainment, but. You know, when when you've been on tour for two months, you don't want anything. You just you, you just want you want to sit in your underwear and watch television. <laughs> I I read an interview uh, uh, in which you, you Mick described um, that part of being a part of being an being a musician in Detroit for that reason was being in a bunch of different bands and playing a bunch of different kinds of music. Yeah, when I when I first started. Um, uh, I hung out my, my professional music shingle in 1980. Uh, and when I first started making, you know, records and, and talking to people and like recording and all that sort of thing, you know, it seemed like everyone in town played in a bunch of different bands. That was just the way it was. It seemed like everybody had at least two or three bands that they played in. And, you know, everybody talks about side project stuff. Well, nobody thought of them as side projects. They were just what you did. You know, we, we didn't even, we never even used the term side project. You know, for, for even if you had like four bands, five bands you played in, none of them were a side project. It was just another band. So yeah, I mean, it's it's it was like that. It's less like that now. Well, it's gotten to a point where you have. I think for a lot of people, it's you have your band that makes money. Yeah, and, <laughs> and then that, you have the band that you want to do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you you have you have the band that you play in, and then the band that you're the front man in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's that's yeah that's everybody now i mean, I, I, can, I can only imagine that uh hanging up your professional music shingle in 1980 as a black guy in detroit it must have been a pretty conscious choice to be a rock and roll musician nah that, <laughs> see that that question gets asked a lot too and it wasn't really it was you know uh the way i normally put it is i'm not the only black guy who was in a punk rock band in detroit in the early 80s i'm just the only one who's still in one 20 years later <laughs> 
but but at the same time being being the uh, not being the only one and everyone doing it there's a big there's a big gap in between those two i think you have to admit well yeah but i was you know there were a lot of other black folks playing in bands too i knew i you know i went to went to high school and 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 hung out with a lot of black guys who were in rock bands you know they 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 all sort of you know left it at, at one point or another, a they lot all, of them are still musicians, they but they don't necessarily up. play in rock bands. Yeah, they all they all grew up. <laughs> was it a social group? Was it the was it the punk rock kids in high school? Nah, it wasn't a scene like like that. It was just you know you ran into folks and you thought, oh wow, you know this this guy plays in a band too. You know, oh yeah, what band do you play in? Oh, I play in such and such. Oh, I play in such and such. And, you know, you might see them around, and you know later, you know when when people started actually going out and playing shows, you might do a show with them or something like that, where you know. Or they would come out and you'd see them like that. Well, that guy really isn't a band. Here's he, here he is with his band. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot positive. of that. Yeah, there was a lot of that. It's like, oh, he wasn't lying. He really wasn't a punk rock band. <laughs> what was it? What was it for you? For you, Mick, that first attracted you to uh, punk rock? There. Hmm. It's tough to say because what what really. Um, well, it was radio actually. Now that, <laughs> to, to be totally honest, it was radio. I got, I discovered the local like punk rock new wave radio show, and uh, told all of my friends, you know, and uh, we all, you know, got heavily into new wave were, were back you, in eighty eighty one. Were you already playing music at the time? Not really. I was I was buying a lot of records, but I wasn't really playing. It wasn't until you know later that we we thought we could we could do that too. You know, that was the, it was just really just the, the thinking that, oh, we can do this too. You know, these guys aren't, you know, we, we know that they're, that stuff's pretty rudimentary. We can play that. And so it just it was snowballed from there. What, what was your first professional band? The first, oh, the first professional one really was the Gories. That was the first one where we were like we would play shows and actually get money. Put out records, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put out records and things. I played in other bands. I played in a band called the U Boats that made some recordings and never did anything. Not, not to be confused with the U Boats from Cleveland who did make a record. That's not me. <laughs> that wasn't the band I was in. Um, and then, uh, you know, I mean, every every town at the time apparently had a band called the U Boats, and every city had a had a really terrible punk rock band of fourteen year olds called Toxic Toxic Shock Syndrome. <laughs> I was in one of those two. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, but really the Gorys was really where, you know, everything came together in such a manner where we were, you know, we were playing regularly and, and eventually did, did recordings. Did you have an idea of what you wanted the Gorys to be? Like, did you have a, uh, you know, obviously you didn't have a manifesto, but did you have a, uh, Oh, a, totally. What was it? We had, you know, what, what started us was myself and Dan Croha, who was also in the Gorys. We, you know, we, we used to get a lot of magazines like indie garage rock and mod magazine stuff we were we were both mods and um we would be hearing about these bands and and they'd talk in the magazines about how wild and primitive these bands were we'd be like oh this gotta be awesome and one of us would buy the record like this is weak we you know this isn't (laughs) wild and primitive at all this is a bunch of jangly 12 string stuff so we decided at some point you know we should form a band and we we really do it as primitively as possible we'll like we'll make it really raw really primitive you know, and one day we were sitting around drinking beer, and we actually did it, and that's that's how the Gorys formed. We we talked about it for probably a good year and a half before we actually, before we actually took the plunge and bought gear. 
But so, like, in that regard, though, too, like, you, you kind of say that you didn't have a manifesto, but at the same time, you went at it. As, we had a we had an idea. Well, yeah, yeah you had you you weren't going to have any snare drum or cymbals or kick drum on on it. It's just going to be nah, primitive, like exactly. Bo Diddley style kind of tribal drums. Just a regular, yeah, and primal you gonna, fud. And you weren't going to have a bass either. Well, we were. I was going to play it. <laughs> we we started out with with me playing bass, um, but at the time, uh, Danny couldn't play guitar all that well, and he was terrible on solos. But I had a knack for doing single note playing. And eventually, what we would do is, if a song had lots of chords, Danny would play and I would play bass. And if it had a lot of single note stuff, <laughs> we'd switch and he would play bass and I would play guitar. And then we decided we were lazy. Let's just ditch the bass and we won't, we won't use it. So we just got another, we just played guitar. <laughs> Ben, you're sort of betraying your uh, Gory's nerd <laughs> status. I read that totally. I, you already mentioned that there's about a 20-year age difference between the two of you, but I, I read somewhere that the uh, that the Gorys were your all-time favorite band. Yeah, by far. <laughs> what, why was that? I think a lot of it has to do with kind of knowing where they came from in terms of Detroit in the mid-'80s and kind of having a vague memory of that. I was never aware enough or cool enough to, to have seen any of their performances. It also, just, you would have been six. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. I wasn't that cool when I was six. But um, it seems like, a for me, it's just, for a city like Detroit that's so diverse in its musical history and past and, and what it's given to you know Western culture in that regard, the Gories kind of seem to encapsulate all the best stuff of Detroit music. You know, you, you have the... the John Lee Hooker style 1940s fortune blues stuff. You have the uh, you know the influence of of Barry Gordy and, and Motown and all these soul labels that were prop, popping up in storefronts. And then you have the uh, the 1960s garage rock bands like the Kegs or the Unrelated Segments or you know anyone on Back from the Grave. All kind of filtered through this you know these three people who couldn't have been on the surface more different. And the way it all came together, and the way it 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 hits you on the records and everything is just uh, it, it's just uncomfortable than anything else. And you just you just have certain moments. I just remember like driving down the freeway in Detroit and putting on a Gory's record, listen to it in the car, and you just have these moments of, of just I don't know how else to describe it other than like pure consciousness. We're just like this totally makes sense. It is completely perfect. There's nothing wrong with this. I mean, it's it's almost <laughs> as, as if it was spit out by a computer program in, in terms of something being completely perfect. I mean, that's how the Gories hit me, and that's how it affects me. And now I just sit in a van with the guy from the Gories, and... <laughs> We just, you know, smell each other's BO yeah. for 12 hours at a time. Yeah, what do you think about all this, Mick? <laughs> oh, I'm used to it now. No, no, it never really comes up. You know. <laughs> it, do, it doesn't. It doesn't really come. Well, it up. came up yesterday. You're totally lying. We're sitting. We're sitting on the couch, and I'm. I'm plucking away. I'm doing. Uh, playing this guitar part for a song called Yaha oh, Baby yeah. by this band, the Bel Airs, who was a, a garage band from Grand Rapids, Michigan, 1966. They have a song that's the song Yahabibi is comped on this back from the grave comp, but the Gorys covered it. So I'm just sitting there like plucking it out in the acoustic guitar, and Mick from across the room is like, Oh yeah, I forgot like, about that. Oh, I'm gonna have to rehearse that song because <laughs> the Gorys have covered it and they're gonna be doing some shows. Yeah. 
I'd like, forgotten. I'd forgotten all about that one. That was one of the really tough ones to play. And I just said to him, "It's like, ah, don't worry, Mick. I'll, I'll teach it to you." <laughs> <laughs> the Gories lasted for a few for a few years, but weren't permanent. You you had all these other projects going on, Mick. What what initially was the germ of the Dirt Bombs? What led you to create the band? Um, it was just going to be another in a series of bands, you know, like another another band that I was doing among, you know, a band among bands that had a limited. I had my my original specification sheet, which I actually wrote out while the Gorys were on tour in Germany. I wrote out like a spec sheet of what was gonna what the Dirt Bombs were gonna do, you know, what kind of music is gonna play and what the lineup was gonna be, and I even had like notes on people sort of thing. You that's know, that's really like eighth grade. I know, <laughs> <that> I know. <laughs> you also drop little logos. No, I didn't do any of that. But yeah, it was like uh, you know, I was sitting there bored, and it was going to be another band, and then uh, make up possible names for yourself in the band. <laughs> <laughs> nicknames. Yeah, I love nicknames. Mrs. Mick Dirtbomb. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, when I got home, I just you know set about doing it. You know, at the time we. By the time we the, the Gorys got home from that tour, we realized that the the, the split was going to be permanent, you know. But it, it really wasn't, you know, the Dirt Bombs wasn't the next thing. It was just another thing I was doing. What made it into uh, the next thing? Because it did become the next thing to a certain extent. Right. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is now basically the main thing, although I did cut four albums in between, you know. <laughs> <laughs> in between the first couple of Dirt Bombs recordings and the next one, I, I went off and did some other things. The Dirt Bombs was basically a, a good excuse to make money to go to comic book conventions, <laughs> which is why is that the only reason it stuck around was like, oh, this is this is great. I can I can we would go on tour for about three weeks and I have enough money to go to comic book conventions. This is awesome. <laughs> and then at some point, um, the crowd started getting bigger, and you know the record we we put out a record and it would be like, and suddenly I thought, oh. Maybe I should keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org. We'll have more with Mick Collins and Ben Blackwell of the Dirt Bombs in just a minute. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. If you're the kind of person who saves all their charitable giving to the very, very, very end of the year and then does it all in one fell swoop, I want you to know that we're more than happy to accept your donation right here at MaximumFun.org. If you'd like to give a year-end gift to support The Sound of Young America, Jordan, Jesse, Go, Coil and Sharp, Casper Hauser, our blog, our forums, and everything else that we do, you can just visit MaximumFun.org and then click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. If you prefer not to use PayPal, you can also send us a check. The address is on that donate page. To all of you who already do donate to support The Sound of Young America, my heartfelt thanks, and here's to another great year. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Mick Collins and Ben Blackwell of the Detroit band The Dirt Bombs. Their new album is called We Have You Surrounded. 
you put out this record called Ultra Glide in Black in uh, 2001, right? Is that mm-hmm. right? Do I have the date right? Yes. Uh, that was a time when uh, the music press was obsessed with the idea of Detroit garage rock. Yeah. And uh, that album, um, we uh, that album both fit into that narrative exceptionally well and didn't fit into that narrative <laughs> exceptionally perfect, well. Perfect way to put it. <laughs> yes. It, yes, it is. It was a it was a collection of soul and r&b covers um what what led you to conceive that mick was it was it part of the original plan yeah it was it was on the list on the spec sheet well okay what happened was uh when we did the first album which was horn dog for us from 1997 i wanted i didn't want to actually make any full-length lps with the dirt bombs that wasn't the idea the idea was the dirt bombs were going to make 15 four songs seven inches and then that was going to be the end of the project it was a project Uh uh-huh and uh uh we did the you know, I got lost in argument with the guy who runs In the Red Records, who was going to put out this this thing. And I, I called everybody I knew. It's like, hey, look, should I do this as a bunch of seven inches or should I make a full length? And everybody to a man said, make a full length. My, my, <laughs> imagination, my imagination of the argument involves you explaining like that all of the different covers were going to go together as a mosaic of a really cool dragon. No, it wasn't anything like that. Well, that's not a bad idea. It wasn't wasn't anything like that. It was just, you know, and then suddenly I thought, well, after I lost this argument, I thought, okay, well, if everybody wants to make full lanes, I've got to do something to make it interesting. I have a really short attention span, right? My attention span lasts about the length of a full-length LP. And uh, that's about all I'm willing to listen to. So, like, double albums, it's going to take me, like, a week to sit through a double record, a two-record set. Because I just after the first album, I feel I feel like I'm I'm done with it. So after I after I lost this argument, we did the first full length. I thought, well, I've got to do something to make this interesting for me to record. And I thought, well, if I stick to one idea for the entire album, that'll be interesting. I can I can work inside that, and that'll make it interesting. So I made a list of like, okay, what are the the things that I would like to do? Like if if I were a person, you know, if I wasn't in this band, what would I want to hear this band do? And one of them was uh, an album of the songs that I would, that would, you know, like I found inspiring or memorable from my childhood, and that's how that happened. And it was a written, and I, there was an order too to the, the the list had the which you know what number the record was going to be, and Ultra Glide in Black was originally the fourth one on the list, and then I was uh, I was at a friend's house and he played me Ode to a Black Man by Phil Linnett, and I thought. Uh, I've got to record that before someone beats me to it. So I, I changed the order around so we, so that Ultra Glide would be the second LP. And it was just, you know, the, the songs on the record, except for two, um, one I wrote and one that was supposed to be a B-side, um, except for two, they were all songs that I really, really liked as a kid. They These were records that, you know, I had as a, as a you know, five-year-old, a six-year-old, seven-year-old, and they I constantly played them. You know, and, and records, and, and some of them, you know, a couple of them were, well, they weren't on, and I didn't play them that much. I thought they were representative of music I liked as a kid. So that was the whole the whole point of Ultra Glide. It, you know, although, you know, I guess Bowie's pinups is, a, is an example of that. You know, that's that's sort of what it could be compared to. Did you at all notice, like, after we recorded it and after all that stuff, there was kind of... In more than a handful of songs, though, the, the kind of lyrical subject matter is kind of the the black experience, though. I mean, was that intentional, or did you... I mean, when you think of songs like Oh, Do a Black Man, or Kung Fu, or Natural Man, um, 
they're they're kind of this undertone or living for the city. There's kind of this right. undertone of like the, the social consciousness. Yeah, exactly. Well, it wasn't intentional, but so many of the songs from that era are all heavily socially conscious. One of the other things about the about that record was, I always felt that those songs were rock songs already. You know, I always I, I didn't feel like I was doing anything really different. They were they were all to, especially like Sly Stone and that. those those songs are already rock and roll songs. Really, they just happen to be written by black authors. Um, and when the record came out, it, it it was really really frustrating to hear people call it an R and B record because I wasn't making an R and B record. I was making a rock album. Black people understood immediately that it was a rock and roll record, but nobody else seemed to get the idea. Now, it t- Ben is always asking me why I feel that record such an album. That's one of them. That's one of the problems I have with it is that everybody keeps calling it a, a soul record, and there was no intention of well, making a soul record. Well, people were calling record. it. A, I mean, just because of the time it came out, though, too, people <laughs> were calling it a garage record. Yeah, it's, and that too. One well, your thing was is I, <laughs> I was doing garage records ten years ago. This is so far from what you would personally consider a garage record. Yeah, my, my definition of garage rock differs from the current one, apparently. Can you like, Let me ask you this question. Can you imagine yourself making a soul record or making an R&B record? I would do it. You know, I, I, I wouldn't be against it. I would do it, but it wouldn't, you know, I don't think it would be what people expected. I actually had an idea, had a, uh, had an idea to do it, to, to make one. Uh, I would still like to, maybe. I'm not sure if I, you know... I'd do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I cut a funk album. I, why, why wouldn't I? I mean, wh- why wouldn't I? I cut a, I cut a funk album. We're going to cut another one. As long as it would have a complicated format. like <laughs> It's all three-inch CDs. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could put it out on wax cylinder. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> it's 12 wax cylinders that right. you line up. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I record anything. There's, for me, you know, the... My reward for the recording and all that is is about to go away, actually. It's actually seeing the physical record, like walking into a store and seeing my record. That's the payoff for me, you know, to, for, for all of it. That's the part I like. That was one of the things that kept me making records was being able to see the records. And these days, you know, that's a less and less of an option. Both of you guys seem to be very passionate about records as consumers as well as as producers. Do you think that has any kind of effect on on the music that you make? Only in the production of it, I think. Um because we still mix like when when we're when I'm making a record, I still mix for vinyl. You know, the I, I I mix with the end result being an LP or or a seven inch. I don't I don't mix with the end result being uh, a CD or an or or an audio file. That's that's really for me. That's really the only place it comes into play at. What about for you, Ben? I think, um, yeah. I, I mean, as a as a record buyer, it, you can't take that mask off and and not have that in your mind when you're when you're making records. But in terms of making them, you know, I. I put out records as as a label. Um, I run a label in Detroit, and part of it, like I, th- I think, a lot of my inspiration in in doing that was just I saw how other people were doing it, and what I didn't like about it. It was kind of more of a, a, a negative influence, um, and so I said, "Well, this is how I want to do things. I want to do things that are quick and and you know, kind of special of the moment. You know, so the past couple tours, the Dirt Bombs have done." Um, we've done like a, a tour single, which you only sell at our merch table and have a song that's only on there with, you know, the bands we're on tour with will be on the B side. 
and just rubber stamp the labels, you know, very handmade DIY kind of approach. Um, and it can be v- very, very quick thing, whereas, you know, other things you see a, a really big, and it's not that I'm against something that's elaborate or big or grandiose, but it's just like, I don't, I don't, like Mick said, I think we have short attention spans and like <laughs> all the, all the work that goes into that, you know, by the time you're, you're working on the, you know, the artwork for the second gatefold of your LP, it's just like, you know, I want to be on something else, you know, like just give me, give me something that can, can be quick. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Mick Collins and Ben Blackwell of the band uh, The Dirt Bombs. Uh, on this new album, We Have You Surrounded, it feels like um, it's, you, you mentioned uh, Living for the City earlier. It has, it has that same tone. So many of the songs have that urban uh, closeness and nervousness. Um, that kind of city feeling was was that the was that intended going in? Yeah, that that became the dominant theme of the record. Um, we were cutting a five song. We were making a five song EP originally, and uh, I got a phone call from the label. And while I was talking with the guy, it, it, it came, you know, it, it popped up that it had been four years since the last Dirt Bombs album. I thought, oh, I better get on that then. <laughs> so we had just done two or three songs, and they all had the same theme of, you know, living in the city and you know, sort of you know decaying city and, and you know things getting out of control. And uh, I thought, well, that's that's the new record. Then we'll just make every song about that. And and even though that wasn't, you know, that that was sort of the general idea. Some of the songs start out being about other things, and they they became that over the course of recording. Is there a particular song that really that speaks powerfully to that theme on this record that you'd like to sort of highlight? When we first got the the finished version of our album back, um, now it seems like over a year ago, um, Mick and I were driving in a car um, back. We'd played a show in New York, and we, we put in the CD, and uh, we listened to the song Ever Loving Man. And uh, as, it, as it finished, as it faded out, Mick kind of turned the stereo down and just, just kind of said to me, matter of fact, and he's like, I don't think there will ever be a better Dirt Bomb song than this. And I just looked at him like, yeah, yeah. you're right. <laughs> Time is running out, and I can't wait. I have to say this before it's too late. I want to be the one. To hear you call To catch you as you tumble While the airport falls And when I say it out loud I look like it's the meal But I gotta do it anyway Tell you how I feel I don't wanna be a hero I just wanna do the best I can To keep you happy And be your You guys have a song on this record, the lyrics of which it came from comic from a comic book. 
Yes. Tell me, you're the you're the comic book enthusiast, Mitch. Yeah. Tell me about how that came about. Enthusiast right. is putting it nicely. <laughs> we usually just say nerd, but okay. <laughs> All right. I about uh, let's see, probably around 2005, uh, I had picked up a comic book by uh, the writer Alan Moore, who is responsible for From Hell and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and the and the Watchmen and some other things. V for Vendetta. V for Vendetta, right? And he had published a book of poems and song lyrics that he had written. And uh, Leopard Man from CNA was in this this comic because he has he occasionally does a band with David J, J, David J from Bauhaus. He occasionally has a band, and uh, I thought I saw these lyrics. I thought, well, that would make a good Dirt Bomb song if I could find the find the record. I'll just we'll just cover it, you know. And so. Off and on over the over the intervening couple of years there, I made inquiries trying to find the song, and and no one seemed to have any knowledge of this this song, you know. And so I, I got more and more intent about it, and it got to the point where you know I would do a web search on this song, and the only things that would come up were people asking about it on my behalf. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 finally, it transpires that there is no recording of the song. They never he he wrote it for another one of their records and they never recorded it and i thought well heck i'll just write my own music to the to these lyrics and that's how leopard man at cna happened i i think while we were in the studio doing it it was vaguely kind of conveyed that this wasn't at least the lyrics weren't weren't mixed or whatever but i you know for me it's like you show up, you record a couple songs and then six months later you're get handed a finished <laughs> cd and you're like wow i played on this but when I found out that Mick kind of tailored the song, not kind of tailored, but really just he put all this music around the words, I, I was really amazed because it sounds so ingrained together. I can't imagine that there are two separate um, parts of this this song. Um, so good job, Mick. Well, thank you. I was actually pretty <laughs> pleased myself when, yeah. when we finished it. You guys are on a pretty big tour right now. Um, oh. You're here in you're here in Los Angeles uh, on tour. Um, what's that like for you to uh, be the opening act in a gargantuan rock and rollathon, um, <laughs> as as opposed to as opposed to being in that situation you described, Mick of uh being the the only band in town sometimes <laughs> in Detroit <laughs> the, both. the one thing to do that week yeah we've we've done both this this tour for us started in the middle of february <laughs> of 2008 and we're still on it we it, it will apparently end in the middle of december of this year so um we've we've done Every show from little tiny bars in the middle of nowhere to you know like now right now we're opening with opening for TV on the radio and they're playing like gigantic theaters and we play festivals, you know we've played every conceivable venue that a band could play. <laughs> well, the and weird, we've all done it all in the one year. Yeah. Well, the weird thing about opening for TV on the radio too is that it not being our our own headlining show is we kind of constrict the the set. You know, yeah. we kind of cut off the fat and and you know try to have almost no time in between songs just one after another for right. a train because style. because we know the audience really isn't there to see us so we just we we get up there we play play a set you know like get them in you know kind of hopefully at the end of our set they're ready to rock out to TV <laughs> on the radio <laughs> but but the interesting thing too is that in that we're we're opening for this band who's huge whose album was you know billboard top 20 it debuted and all this stuff is that opening for them 
still becomes kind of like the only thing happening in town. Yeah. <laughs> like you're 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 still you know the big event that everyone's looking right. forward to, and it's not necessarily because of us, but we're still a part of it. Um, but their their fans, the band themselves, those guys at TV on the radio, are amazing and and wonderful, and just just like a dream come true touring with them. And the fans too. I think we've we've won over um, more than our fair share. I think we've yeah we've, we've done really well with them. Yeah. We've pulled we've pulled a lot of tricks though. I mean we we had to <laughs> yeah sure. You know. <laughs> it's always the way. <laughs> and you're gonna go on rock and roll tour. Yeah. It also strikes me as kind of landmark in the world of black rock with TV on the radio being a predominantly African American band. Um, have you, have you, Mick, uh, gotten reactions to your show that are different, given that you're in this context of um, two rock bands that have uh, mm. that have black members? Not really. Not uh, you know. And now you say that, it is kind of odd that uh, it hasn't actually been mentioned. But no, no, no one said anything about it, really. That, that's interesting to me because you know a lot of um, uh, black folks who I know who are into rock and roll are very aware of it because, you know, a lot of times you go to a show and you're mm-hmm. the black guy there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, there have been many, many shows where I'm the only black dude in the whole building. And, and, once <laughs> we, we, and we, we played more than our fair share of shows where I walked in and the club thought I was the roadie. <laughs> well, it, the, another interesting thing, though, too, is that earlier this year we played a, a festival in Brooklyn um, called the Afropunk Festival that is kind of based around this idea of, you know, black, black people punks. in rock bands. Yeah. And uh, after the after the show, um, we did an interview, uh, an on camera interview, and they said, "Oh, you know, Dirt Bombs, thanks for coming, Mick Collins. You know, thank you so much. What made you decide to play the Afro Punk Festival?" And Mick said, <laughs> the, "The check," <laughs> <laughs> which was which was kind of weird because in in their eyes, it was it's it's the Afro Punk is a documentary movie that they did. It's this festival. It's they call it the yeah, move. It's a, for they them, go, it's a movement. It's, it's a, a movement. mindset. And I'm just like, I'm just a dude in a band. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't there was I wasn't making you know I'm I'm not making any sort of political statement by being a black guy playing rock music. I'm just a guy in a band. What was their reaction to I, that? I think we were hustled think, out of there. Yeah, real I think fast. they were kind of. I think they were kind of <laughs> bummed that we didn't have like some larger social agenda about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Just like you know what? What was the? We didn't come there with uh, some bigger aspirations. Yeah. It was just like we're a rock band. We're, yeah. we're not. We're not delusional about what. What, what to that expect means. from being a rock band? Exactly. You know, the guy who directed Afropunk was on the Sound of Young America when Afropunk first came out. It was quite some time ago now, five years ago. Super nice guy, um, and I interviewed him. Uh, my then co-host Jordan and I interviewed him standing at the base of the UC Santa Cruz campus in our underwear uh, for a pledge drive stunt. He's All got right. like you know at the time I think he had a giant mohawk and stuff. And <laughs> that's what wearing, I call radio. And he was and he was exceedingly gracious. So I can't imagine that he was that phased by your answer, Mick. <laughs> I mean, I I, only, I, I kind of said it humorously, but really that was you know I mean I, I, like you said there's no broader social agenda of being in a rock band. I, I mean, it's what I do, and I, you know and also as we were saying earlier, I don't just play rock. You know, I got a funk band and you know I have a techno project as well. So you know it's, it's just a band. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Sandy Young America. It was really fun to have you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Jesse. Mick Collins and Ben Blackwell are in the rock and roll band The Dirt Bombs. Their new album is called We Have You Surrounded. 
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself, interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. This show edited by Nick White. Our intern is Casey O'Brien. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org where you'll find our blog, among other things. And if you want to follow us, both me and Jordan are on the Twitter. My username is YoungAmerican. Jordan's is Jordan underscore Morris. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America.